Um, if I can read you uh, a small story that I was recently told, and it's, it's pretty intense. Um, a group of Christians were discovered in North Korea. They worshipped Christ, and so did their loved ones, that being including their children. When they were discovered by the government, they told them, if you do not acknowledge our leader as God, if you do not denounce your Christ, your children will be hung. And one of the children looking at the mother, wondering what she will decide, and the reality of how serious these threats were all too real, for it was only hours ago, 28 Christians were discovered and executed. The guards made it very clear, if you do not deny your Christ, you will die. The mother thought of her child, but she could not deny her Lord. And the other Christians agreed. And the North Korean guards, again, deny your Christ or your children will die. The children looked at their parents, and the parents deeply loved their children, but they could not deny their Lord. One mother looked at her child and whispered confidently and peacefully, Today, my love. You will be with me and our Lord in paradise. And all the children were hung. And the adults were laid down in a row row, as a steamroller nearby sat at the end of the street. And they were given yet another chance. Deny your Christ. The adults knew that their children and the Lord were waiting for them in heaven. Do we have limits for God? Have you limited what God is allowed to do in your life? God, you can do anything in my life but this. God, you can do anything in my life, but don't you dare touch my children or my vocation or my man or my girl or my talent. Jesus, everything the light touches is yours, except that shadowy area over there. So let me ask you, what is the untouchable in your life? It's so tempting for our will to try and leash God. And I believe nothing exposes this more than the cut of suffering. Every time we suffer or meet pain, it reminds us of our mortality, of our lack of control. You see, it's suffering that exposes our limits and reveals his limitlessness. God, I can't do this. God, I need you. God, I have no one else. God, I I can't speak to him or her. I can no way forgive him or her. God, I can't get out of bed. God, I'm in massive amount of pain. See, suffering is just a very heavy, crushing topic. That's why we're taking weeks to study it. From many different angles and forms out of the book of Acts. And from the very first week we started this ride of sorts. We tried to come to this understanding with the purpose and meaning of suffering and evil and pain. And one of the points that kept creeping in over every one of our talks was that suffering is universal. Suffering is all transcending. Suffering and pain is non-partial. It is a reality. Pastor, theologian, and author John Stott, who was just one of my faves, he says it this way. The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. 
its distri- uh, dist- distribution excuse me, and degree appeared to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Now, these aren't thoughts and a challenge just for those who are in the moment of suffering or who are in the fire. But this is a challenge for the everyday. It is the challenge for all who plead that suffering is the foremost objection to the Christian faith or to the gospel or to the Bible or to Jesus Christ. It's the topic that is most close to home for all of us because there is no hiding when it comes to suffering. There is no avoiding it. I was reminded of that silly Benjamin Franklin famous, you know, quote he famously said. He said, there are two certainties in life. You guys remember what they are? Death and taxes. Jesus would add a third. Death, taxes, and suffering. But tonight's angle on suffering has an entirely uh, different, sharper edge to it. And it's a cut that I think we can all too easily forget. And it's in the form of suffering that is persecution. Tonight I want to talk about persecution. And see, where suffering is inevitable... Persecution is a choice. Suffering is a dish served to all, Christians and atheists and vegans, especially vegans, uh, to techies and trekkies and children and grandparents. But persecution is a choice. I say it's a choice because it's a form of suffering that comes to those who choose, who choose to believe. Those Korean Christians who faced the suffering of persecution, for them it could have all been avoided if they would have chosen to deny. No pain would have been brought to them if they would have been chosen or decided to deny their Christ. The pain would have stopped if their belief would have stopped. Their persecution was a choice because following Christ was their choice. Everyone here, everybody here, has either made a conscious choice to follow Christ, or a conscious choice to not follow Christ. There is no in-between. And when one counts the cost of what it means to follow Christ, to believe in the God of the Bible, that is to then unleash God. I've counted the cost, now I unleash God. It's to say, God, there is no limits to what you can do or what you're allowed to do in my life. Think about if you maybe know his story or not, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous words, Bonhoeffer again, a man and pastor who was persecuted to the point of death by the Nazi regime. He wrote these words very pointedly. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave their home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So whether it's the death of our will, or our desires, or our lives, like Bonhoeffer's tragic end, they're his. That being God's nonetheless. And it's this type of worldview that sealed the fate for those in the early church. For the very first church to purpose its life and its death after Jesus was basically and essentially them digging their own grave. A type of Christianity many of us, if not all of us, will never, ever know. 
And we've been reading and applying the book of Acts since October of last year. So some of you might remember where suffering and persecution entered the scene. Because like Acts 1 through 3 is awesome and everybody's pumped. And Acts 4 shows up and everybody's like, mm-mm-mm. Acts 4 is when we see it for the first time. And by then, the very first church, Christian Jesus community, must have only been weeks old. Historians and New Testament scholars, excuse me, would tell us that there are five massive outbreaks of Christian persecution in one decade. And it all started in Acts 4. And this was the norm from then until now. You see, where faith exists, so can persecution. And that persecution, as it continued, all the way to the infamous persecutions that so many of us have probably heard about by the ruler Nero in AD 67. Who's heard about the persecutions that he would perform? They're quite infamous. As he would sow hides of animal skins to Christians of all ages, and he would let them run loose, releasing his dogs to go and feed on them. I mean, Game of Thrones has nothing on Nero. And as well, I mean, he would, this most famously, he would dip the Christians in wax and light them to light his parties. Christians, by his hands, would have their bodies ripped apart, hung, burned with hot irons, impaled on the horns of bulls, boiled in oil, fed to lions, and beheaded. All because they chose to believe in Jesus. Now, before we can even think about a man named Nero, we must recall a man by the name of Saul. We must get to know Saul. If you are intrigued by anything with the early church, it is imperative that you better call Saul. Thank you, all four of you. Without Saul... Listen, without Saul and his horrible deeds in Acts chapter 8, the church today, hear me, would not exist. The church today would not exist without Saul. Without the persecution of Acts chapter 8, the church would have ceased. As one commentator said on this infamous chapter of persecution, chapter 8 is among the most important chapters in the history of the church. So out of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, like this is top three every Christian man, woman, and child should know about. We should be familiar with this chapter. And I beg of you, don't glaze over it tonight. Don't get sucked in the Instagram black hole. I see you. I see, I, you're on it right now. I see it. And one of the main reasons chapter 8, again, is so vital is because of Saul. We're introduced to him, if you remember, in Acts chapter 7 at a murder scene. If you have your Bible, go to chapter 7, verse 58. So they're telling the story of Stephen, and he gives, you know, gets done telling this epic sermon, and then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So in order for these, these officials to have greater accuracy or greater force, and to avoid the cleaning bill to get blood out of their robes, they laid their robes at the feet of Saul. Saul here was the ignition. Saul here was the instigator. History would show us to have robes laid at your feet, or to have anything laid at your feet means you are in the authority. Saul was no doubt the head honcho. Watching Stephen, literally his bones breaking, 
and he is very pleased. This young Pharisee wanted the church extinct, and it launched with the, the absolute slaughter of Stephen. Steve, uh, Saul, Saul hated Stephen. Saul hates Jesus. Hates Jesus. Saul, a highly devout religious man, hates Jesus. And for Saul to hate Christ is to hate all who identify with him. Thus we have in Acts chapter 8 verse 3. Look down at your Bibles. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke, our author of Acts, is great with imagery. If you want a vivid mental image of Saul's persecution on the church, Luke tells us to think of an animal attack. Luke is probably right. How do I describe it? It's literally predator and prey. Get your Nat Geo like main, you know, mainframe mindset here as you try to imagine what in the world Saul was doing. The savage nature, the brutal, lethal takedown. I mean, this was Saul to the church as a predator is to a prey in the wild. Saul of Tarsus had a gift for it. And he had a heart to do it. I mean, look at this. Look at this. Verse 3. And entering house after house. That's disgusting, right? We're appalled. He's forcibly entering the homes of Christian believers. It's a home invasion. I was thinking today, I mean, he's Christoph Waltz from Tarantino films, and you're just sort of nervous and shaking as he walks into your house. Now hear me, hear me again. We'll never truly ever probably experience this level of persecution, but we are to try to understand what they went through. I want us to just imagine, imagine, imagine this. Christian fathers and Christian mothers having unknowingly their very last dinner with their children. Imagine hearing the screams next door knowing you are next. Imagine seeing torches at your doorstep, torches at your window. Imagine no knocking but like a wild animal kicking in your door. Imagine seeing your wife dragged away. My goodness. Imagine seeing your children dragged away. Imagine seeing your father, your mother, your husband dragged away from your grip. That's what it says, right? Verse 3. He dragged. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I was thinking, it's a horrible thought, but have you ever dragged anybody or been dragged? It's terrifying. And they threw them into prison. And remember, these weren't like orange is the new black, where everybody's chummy, chocolate milk, craft time from three to four. That's not the type of prison we're talking about here. For some of these prisons, death would have been a sweeter release. Simply, Saul gave one of the most powerful blows the church will ever experience. Ever. He's a living nightmare. He is a monster. Saul is heartless, intolerant, bully, a religious bully, which is the worst of its kind. A terrorist. I was thinking he is the Darth Sidious to the church. He's the Voldemort to the church. He is Jafar. He is Hannibal Lecter. He is T-1000 to all things Jesus. He hates Jesus. But as I was prepping for this, I just had to stop and go, what's with the absolute sincere hatred 
When it comes to suffering and persecution, why the intense hatred? Not only from men like Saul, but all the way to the vast martyrs over the years. Frederick Buchner, a great commentator, he says this. This will, this will, yeah, you'll see. In obedience to scriptures and to Christ's extraordinarily authoritative claims, disciples will be called fanatics. In seeking reconciliation, they will be called cowards. In decisions for sexual purity, they will be called puritanical. In fidelity to marriage partners, they will be called prudish. In rejecting oaths, they will be called sectarians. In responding nonviolent, they will be called weaklings. In responding with enemy love, they will become, be called unpatriotic. This quote showing us that Christians and the church can be hated for a lot of reasons. But hear me out, a lot of Christians, I want to go down just a small little idea here. A lot of Christians can just be hated for absolute arrogance. Right? Does anybody else have just the darkest, grossest shivers and chills when we read YouTube comments from Christians? Good Lord. There's nothing I hate more than scrolling through my Twitter feed and I see Christians responding to Dawkins, responding to Bill Maher. It's just arrogance what they're trying to do and prove in 140 characters. Christians can be hated for being obnoxious. Right? Christians can be hated for being obnoxious because I tell you what, and we probably, most of us all agree to stand on a street corner with a megaphone to somebody's face and to say, you are going to hell, is obnoxious. It's very obnoxious. Shoving tracks into people's faces and hands with bloody images of Jesus is obnoxious. Christians can be hated for being self-righteous. The amount of people that I've heard who are hurting or I've seen or witnessed who've just been completely torn apart by Christians because they don't share the same worldview about sexuality, about marriage, about afterlife, and Christians just shred them. I would hate your Christ too if you are the representative. Now being pretty harsh here, and I don't mean to be, but I really want us to understand this, that most, if not all the time, when people are in those situations, and they come out, and they blog, or they proclaim to the world, from, you know, from the reaction they've received, they go, I'm persecuted for my faith, because he didn't respond to my megaphone. I'm persecuted for my faith on a YouTube comment section. No, you're hated. We're hated, not because of our master, but because of your or ours method. They're not persecuting Jesus in those moments. More often than not, we've offended them, rather than the gospel message offending them. So yes, we too might experience hatred because Christ was hated. Absolutely. But not in a victim way because true persecution is directed at the gospel of Jesus Christ and taken out on us. I want us to hear this idea and this understanding from Jesus himself. It's a little long, so bear with me. And it's, the wording's all funky, so I'm going to mess it up, but just bear with me. 
Jesus said this to all who follow him. If the world, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, but whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So Christianity can be intensely hated. It can be intensely hated by, by a lot, but not all. We know that. But this idea has been most often called, this idea, the mystery of iniquity. See, I'm too fearful to say that we are hated because of the exclusivity of Christ. I'm too fearful to say we are hated because tolerance versus intolerance. This idea of you will be hated is one of the more handfuls of sayings in the Bible that is almost verbatim in all of the four Gospels of Jesus, showing us that it is one of the most certain verbatim statements of Jesus and one of the most certain truths for Jesus. One of the most certain truths for us. It's fascinating. So many people, I don't know if you've heard this, so many people today proclaim that if we were just more like Christ, we, us, followers of Jesus, then everybody would get along, there would be no hatred, we'd all like each other, the world would be filled with love. If you were just more like Christ. And then I love to remind them, they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus. They killed him to the point of execution, and yet the world, the world had never seen a love like his. Because Jesus exposed that he was full of love and full of truth. If our determination, hear me out, if our determination is to be like Jesus, and it very much should be, then we can be expected to be treated like Jesus. Again, not by all, but by those who oppose the gospel will radically oppose you and me. They will radically oppose you and me. Now here's the thing, let's be honest. Let's be completely honest about persecution. We as Americans... In the West, again, we will probably never see this type of persecution. We probably never know the pain or the reality of a steamroller or hangings or being dragged from our homes. So there's an inclination for like zero application in tonight's talk. To walk away with, cool, Christians are hated, Saul's a jerk, good night. So let's get real. How does a talk like this have its application with us in sunny California. We live in Santa Monica and have Chipotle. How does that, how's the persecution even bother us? How does it even affect us? I mean, do we even get that? We're in a building singing and worshiping Jesus and there is zero concern that the government officials are going to come bang down that door and drag me off. We have zero concerns that people, the government, will come and burn our Bibles 
before our eyes or harm our children across the way. Actually, the government likes us here. LUSD wants us here. Dare I say we take it for granted. I know I do. I come and I complain going, do you know how far I parked? Where's the cookies? This is suffering. I mean, this message was weak or this music's too fast. This music's too slow. Since the extreme of heavy opposition is basically, you know, alien from our life, what are we to know or to do with suffering as persecution? Well, first, I just have a couple of points. Well, first, it would be helpful to define Christian persecution. And I would define it very basically as severe opposition for belief. I've heard of many definitions, and this seems like a good middle ground for people's vast array of what persecution, Christian persecution is. Severe opposition for belief. So obviously, when you say something that vague, there are varying degrees of difference or persecution for all Christians, right? Varying degrees. It's not just death. To claim Christ as Lord, both publicly and privately, to claim Christ as Lord, both publicly and privately, may include such opposition and persecution in the West, in the States, in America, as shunning from family, loss of equality, severe mocking, wretched, wretched hatred, abuse and ridicule, ridicule, excuse me, a casting out or strong alienation. As Christians, we must not only be aware of what's happening around us, and this takes us to our second point, but feel the burn. We must feel the burn of persecution in the world. Meaning, the Bible says that when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. Anybody in here heard of Dr. Paul Brand? All right. Um, He was a brilliant scientist. He was an avid environmentalist, an astute theologian, and a compassionate physician. In short, he helped establish a leprosy hospital, which became a world-renowned center for leprosy research and treatment. And very quickly, quickly, if you don't know, leprosy is the disease with an effect that makes your limbs go numb. Essentially, you can't feel pain. Dr. Paul Brand would often speak of the joys of pain. The joys of pain when he would say, A healthy body is one that feels the pain in the weakest part. Collective church, the same principle applies to the body of Christ. May we never forget those who are suffering for the light in a darkening world, ever. What happens then globally, we must be aware of it to the point we're broken by it. It's not enough to just... Oh, persecution, ISIS, it's not enough. We must be broken over it. We must know things like it's reported that more people have died for professing Jesus Christ in the last hundred years than in the last 2,000 years combined. Persecution is not dying out. Pope Francis, in his last visit to the U.S., probably a lot of you remember, Uh, He said, it causes me great pain to know that Christians in the world submit to the greatest amount of such discrimination. Persecution against Christians today is actually worse than in the first centuries of the church. 
And there are more Christian martyrs today than in that era. We must know things like the worst of persecution exists in one, North Korea, two, Afghanistan, three, Saudi Arabia, four, Somalia, and five, Iran. And if you want any of my sources, come up afterwards and ask me. Those are the five worst countries, places for persecution in the world. But here's the thing. Just because it seems like, and this is the trap, it's so easy to fall on. It's inevitable in the Bible. God's going to do something good with it. Yes, 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 yes. That doesn't mean we're okay with it. We are to hate persecution. We must advocate for it to stop. We must pray for the relief of our brothers and sisters because that's exactly what they are. That's exactly what they are. When we are thinking about opposition and persecution, it is helpful to remember the fact that persecution is not primarily about the Christian individual, but the entire body, the church as a whole. The Bible portrays persecution as a communal reality. Where every region and every individual who professes Christ shares in that suffering. The writer of the book of Philippians says this about suffering. It is a right for me to feel this way about you at all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. The same author wrote in 2 Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's an all-communal reality. What happens there, we should feel it here. What happens here, they should feel it there. That's how the body of Christ works. Three, persecution should, this is a short point, like all suffering, remind us of what is precious. Should remind us, like all suffering does, of what is precious. And four, this is a good point for us as a church. It should also, persecution demystifies that ministry and mission is just for pastors and missionaries. Some of you may know what happened in 1948, 1949-ish, in China basically government said all missionaries out no missionaries in all church leaders gone gone and if we're on this side of the ocean we go oh man Christianity in China is dead bummer but that's not what happened at all people got nuts for Jesus so much so that it's reported now that China in the next 20-ish years will have a Christian population there worshiping Jesus that is larger than the entire population of the United States. Powerful. Clearly, God is not afraid or worried about what man can do. God is not fearful at all about what man can do. Because his love and his mercy and his grace and his gospel can withstand the heat of any fire. Christians here, do not be afraid when you are in fire, when you are in the fire. Now, and I was typing those words, sitting at my dining room table, and there's books everywhere, and I go, Christians, do not be afraid. And then I also typed, that sounds super easy. I think I probably say it every Sunday. Stand for Jesus. Preach it. Teach it. Smack it on bing bong. Like whatever. I say it every Sunday. And I stand before you all. 
And I've stood before thousands of people telling them the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The provision through Christ Jesus. And yet, at times, I'm freaked out to tell just one of my neighbors. I'm freaked out to tell one of my neighbors. I ain't worried at all to tell a bunch of you guys like, love Jesus. Do it. I'm scared of rejection. And I'm scared of being scorned and to be resisted. And I'm afraid of animosity and I'm afraid to be seen as an outcast. Like rejection from my neighbor at all would even be considered persecution. What? The minute she says politely, no thank you. Oh God! (laughs) I mean, is that just me? I hope not. I don't want to be alone. I, I so badly want to be liked. So badly want to be liked. And I want everyone here to just love me. And I want affirmation and I want approval. And I have like all five love, love languages that I need all sorts of strangers to meet on a daily basis. <laughs> and the scary part is that we need their approval. Here, hear me out. This is a huge this is a point. Sometimes we need their approval to the point of the temptation when it is to deny Christ in those moments. And some of us, dare I say, do it. We forget who Jesus is. We forget his words. That I need your approval so much. No, I don't need to. I can forget Jesus now in this moment. I just kept saying and thinking, I'm just reading about persecution so much, I just kept thinking, God, help us. What I love and find gloriously convicting is that persecution is assumed for those Christians who live intentionally. And I mean by that gospel intentionality or missional intentionality or God's love or generosity or enemy love or whatever. Basically, persecution does not come to those who are hushed or denounced who hide it under a bushel. Opposition on any level is birthed out of the determination to make much of Jesus. I think that's worth saying again. Opposition on any level is birthed out of the determination to make much of Jesus. In our lives, to make much of Jesus in our social circles or our apartment complex or our Dungeons and Dragons tournaments or our classrooms or our relationships or our careers. And all of that is a choice to make much of Jesus. It is a choice. Now hear me out. That doesn't mean we get weird. That Don't get weird. Mm, make much of Jesus. This coffee tastes like Jesus. This movie is like Jesus. This couch is comfy like Jesus. That's not making much of Jesus. That's silly and people are going to be like, weirdo. Like that's just not what we should be doing. To make much of Jesus for our context today would be to declare to those around us, we have more than this life. There is more than this life. That though our life may be torn to shreds, what is offered in Christ Jesus far exceeds it. For those here who maybe don't follow Jesus, believe in the God of the Bible, I would, I'd love to know your thoughts when you hear stories about Christian persecution. I'd love to know your thoughts about persecution. 
on some sense, there you go, they're insane. Just deny Jesus and save your children. They're insane. Or do you go to the other end where it's, they have found something worth living and dying for. One of the loudest voices to the west side will be a life unlimited to God. Here's what I mean. Think of Stephen. Think of what Stephen declared to Saul. If you were here last week, you remember Stephen was being stoned and he forgave Paul. Stephen, in his dying moments of suffering and persecution, declared what was most valuable to him. Suffering and persecution does just that. It declares what is most valuable. The fire burns away all which is so easily consumed. And God refines our priorities. Stephen revealed his commitment and total surrender to Jesus. This obviously having huge, massive, paramount impact on the one of the worst persecutors the church has ever encountered. That being Saul from Tarsus. Now, if you do not understand... If you do not understand the brutality and terror that was the man Saul, then you will never be jolted by the rest of the Bible that follows him. Let it be known the life and transformation of Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle is a display that our God can take what is ruins in our life and make it something praiseworthy. That a God can take that our God can take a man who is pure evil and hatred and deliver him. Acts chapter 9, when we talk about Saul getting saved, I cannot wait. These are the written words, though, of a man who was formerly Saul, murderer of Christians and hater of Jesus. Let me read the words Saul wrote. Remember everything we just said about Saul and imagine him now penning these words. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of who I am foremost. But I received mercy. For this reason, that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might, hear this, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just does this poetic, beautiful thing where he talks about what matters most in all of his persecution and suffering. And he says, to the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever. Amen. It made my heart speechless. If we are totally given over, there are no limits, preconditions. We are his, period. Stephen knew it. Saul came to know it. And that is true in life and in times of difficulty and in times of joy and times of suffering and and persecution and in death. So... As the steamroller was there at the end, and the parents, Christian parents, were just lined up in a row, face down, 
And they heard the words one more time, deny your Christ and you will live. You know what they did? Instead of denying, they sang. Allow these words of this hymn encourage you in your life as they encouraged our brothers and sisters in their death. Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. Then shall my last breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. Let's pray.